Good morning. The first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. This is the word of God. Our second reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very same Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, give us Jesus. Give us your spirit. Give us your power and your presence that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. Some have said there are two ways to watch a movie. Which way are you? One is to do it quietly with nary a distraction so that you can fully enter the story. Or 
The second way is to do it socially with conversations or texts so that you can have the full social experience as you watch the movie. I found often when watching the movie with Carrie and our daughters as they were growing up that I was outnumbered four to one. My dad definitely believed in avoiding distractions so that he could fully enter the movie. In other words, he did it the right way. But sometimes he could take it too far. One time when he was an engineer in New York, a young man, he went with other co-workers to see a movie. In the movie, a, a crime happened early. There was a murder, and then you know what happens next. The leading man, the one who's totally innocent of the crime, comes in on the scene. He sees the body there. He sees the gun beside the body. He moves towards it in shock, and before he could reach for the gun, my dad yelled out in the theater, Don't pick it up! His five friends quickly scattered, and he watched the rest of the movie by himself. When it comes to dealing with the Trinity, that is, the way that Christians define the nature of God, one of my favorite teachers of preachers also calls out, don't pick it up. Trying to explain the Trinity, that is, the idea that God is both three persons and yet one God in a sermon is, quote, a really, really bad idea, David Lowe's writes. Doctrines may be appropriate for the classroom, he explains, but in sermons and in worship, we come here not to talk about God or ideas about God, but to experience God. Lowston says, and here is my rule of thumb, by the way, regarding the Trinity. People who say they understand it are not to be trusted. I mean, well, the Trinity is, quite frankly, more than just a little beyond our comprehension and understanding. Today, I'm going to pick up the Trinity, but do it very, very carefully. The Trinity is a mystery, but yet it is at the center of our faith. When we, we believe that when we speak of the Creator or Father, of Jesus Christ or the Son and of the Holy Spirit that we are speaking of the same God. They have been there together always. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, was also the Word who was with God in the beginning, we understand. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it is there in Genesis 1-1, bringing creation into being, the wind of God. To see or hear one is to see or hear them all. And to be sure, the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. Instead, it's the word given by the early church and the early Christians to their experience of God. The doctrine of the Trinity is how the church tried to make sense of the language of Isaiah 6 that Karen just read, where God refers to us. And in Romans 8, the passage I just read, where at different points, Paul refers to God and Father and Christ and Spirit. So I do want to pick up the Trinity very carefully, but not to explain a scholarly doctrine. Instead, I want to explore these passages in Isaiah and Romans and see how they relate to our experience of God 
specifically in prayer. What I would like to do today is explore what one person is called the geography of God. First, God is above us. Isaiah 6 describes a vision that was strange for Isaiah then, but which sounds even stranger to us now 28 centuries later. At the beginning of chapter 6, Isaiah stands at the entrance of the sacred precincts of the temple, the innermost room. It was the room where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was a room where only the chief priest could enter. It was the room that some Jews understood to be the very throne of God. And indeed, what he sees there when he arrives is the hymn of God's robe, signifying that it is the throne and that God stretches out beyond sight infinitely up into the heavens. And God is surrounded there by seraphs, the seraphim that we just sang about in Holy, Holy, Holy. They are six-winged creatures, heavenly creatures. There is attendance to the throne. In Isaiah's vision, he can hear them singing music much just like what we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. And that very temple is shaking and smoke abounds. Isaiah's response to all of this is understandably an exclamation of dismay. Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen God, even if it's just the hymn. What Isaiah 6 declares here, that God is indeed above and beyond us. God is holy, which means that God is holy other. God's ways are not our ways. Our words used to describe or explain God always fall short. Our images, examples, metaphors always are never fully accurate. In the face of God's holiness, Isaiah's response is entirely appropriate. Indeed, how can you respond in any other way? Before God's blinding goodness, we cannot help but feel that we are unworthy because we are aware of how far short we fall of God's goodness, wisdom, and love. How much we fail to reflect it. Praying to such a holy God reminds us that God is not our magical genie there to give us what we wish and to do our will. No, instead we are called to do God's will. But let's be honest. Praying to such a holy God can be intimidating. Such a God can seem aloof and distant. Prayer can seem then like the fire extinguisher behind glass or the 911 call that we know we only make when it's really, really, really an emergency. Who can ever feel close to such a God or feel that such a distant holy God loves us? The only way to get near to such a God is to climb a ladder, a very long and scary ladder. But this image of God, there is also good news and consolation for our souls. 
in the face of the power of sin and greed and evil in the world, we need a powerful God, a holy God, who is greater than all those other powers. We need a God who can deliver true justice and true peace. When we pray for our lives and for the lives of others, when we pray that they might be held in the hands of God, we need for those hands to be awesome and powerful hands, hands that will not let us go no matter what may happen. God is a holy God beyond our knowing, far, far above us, far, far beyond and different from us. But to say that God is above us is to speak of only one dimension, for God is also beside us. This is where the God of the Trinity, the God of the Bible, often departs from the popular image that many people have of God. As Michael Linval writes, the God that many people carry around in their heads is a remote, uninvolved, unknowable deity. In contrast, the story of the God in the Bible is a God, is a being who is passionate and tireless in pursuit of a relationship with humanity. We get a glimpse of that pursuit in Isaiah 6. Instead of striking Isaiah dead on the spot or banishing Isaiah from being where he's not supposed to be, God instead sends a seraph who with a burning coal heals Isaiah, and then God gives Isaiah his mission as a prophet. But it is in Jesus Christ that we fully see God's passionate and tireless pursuit of a relationship with us and all of humanity. The Word becomes flesh in Jesus Christ so that we can better see and understand God and God's love for us. On the cross, we see the cost that God is willing to pay, the length that God will go for our sake. And in the resurrection, we see that God has crossed every distance, surmounted every wall or obstacle that stands between us and God's love. Indeed, as Paul proclaims in words in Romans 8, which when you think about it, are astonishing. It's not that we're merely servants in the house of God. No, we are adopted to be God's children We are brothers and sisters to Christ. We are heirs to God. And so we can be confident of God's love for us. That's why we can use intimate family terms like Abba to pray to God. Sometimes when it comes to prayer, we can feel like children sort of tugging on the pants leg or the skirt of our parents so that they will turn around and look at us. But when we pray, when we think we're trying to get God's attention, what we find is that God is always already turned towards us. Indeed, God delights in us, not because of what we have done, because of who God is. God loves us. We do not need to leave our world or climb a great ladder to find God. 
Instead, in Jesus Christ, God has already jumped down into our world. So when we pray for our days in the morning, when we pray about a difficult meeting, for example, or a difficult relationship, we do not have to face those situations alone. We know that Jesus will be beside us, that God will be beside us, and there is nothing that we will ever face alone. God is above us. God is beside us. Those are two dimensions of God's being, but even two dimensions are not enough to convey the geography of God. For Romans 8 also declares this, God is within us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit works within us, bearing witness that we are children of God, Paul writes. The Spirit gives us a power from within, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's amazing enough, but Paul does not end there. Instead, he goes on to say this about the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very same Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. God is within us, which means that God knows us from the inside out, and there's no reason not to be honest in our prayers. Relationships thrive on honesty, we know that. But there's always a limit to how much honesty we can share with another human being, how much honesty they can absorb from us. But with God, there is no limit. There's no need to sugarcoat it or to avoid saying what we are truly feeling. God can take it all, even our deepest fears and even our greatest anger, even when we're angry with God. Because God already knows it. And God always and already loves us. What's even better is that God knows what we cannot yet put into words. God knows that which is too deep for words, that which we may not yet consciously realize. That's what it means to say the Spirit intercedes for us. We often think of prayer as a conversation we initiate. We pick up the phone and wonder if God will pick up the phone at the other end. But what Paul is telling us here is that prayer is something that God initiates. As one writer on prayer puts it, in prayer we're never getting a conversation going with God. Instead, we are continuing a conversation that God has already begun. The question then is not whether God is paying attention to us. The question is whether we are paying attention to God. God is always paying attention to us because God longs to have a relationship with us. Prayer is speaking, but prayer is also listening. Listening to God through the words of Scripture, through the words of others, through the words of creation, sometimes through the wordless words of silence, and sometimes 
through the thoughts and fears and desires that bubble up from the deepest depths of our heart. That is God's Spirit at work in us. Sometimes a person will ask Carrie or me, when you pray, whom do you pray to? Do you pray to the Father or to the Son or to the Holy Spirit? Our usual answer is yes. Sometimes we draw near to the holiness of God who is beyond us in power and glory and light. Sometimes we become aware of the one who is surrounding us, who is walking or sitting beside us. And sometimes we center on the movement within us as light or breath or fire or spirit, all ways that the scriptures speak of the presence of God's Spirit. God is a God of three dimensions, not separate or distinct, but fused as one. It is only our finite awareness that separates and distinguishes them. Above, beside, within, we are surrounded by God who is always reaching out to us in love Because God's most fervent desire, the essence of God's very nature, is to love us and have a relationship with us. We pray and we worship to a three-dimensional God. Look at God through only one dimension, and we miss out on something important. Yet, even three dimensions are not enough to express the wonder, love, and grace of the triune God who picks us up and holds us very carefully. But for now, this side of heaven, three dimensions will have to do. Let us pray. O holy God, O loving God, Help us to be attentive to your abiding presence and your loving power. Amen. And let us stand and proclaim our faith with words that Christians have been saying together for more than 20 centuries. And if you'll note, it's triune as it speaks of God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born under Pontius Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. For thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.